Who the fuck is Taylor Swift? I listen to Gleep Glorp. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show where we have a marvelous time sharing the snackable meanings behind your favorite songs. I'm your host, journalist Lindsay Tucker, and I'm joined here today, as always, by Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, Hello. tell them who you are. Yes, that is me. I am I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I am a writer, a filmmaker, a musician, a podcast host, a podcast editor, and yeah, the, here I am. Here a, I a am. A Swifty. Yes, we are here today to talk about The Last Great American Dynasty off Taylor Swift's Angel album, Folklore. What is an angel album? It's an album that's a literal gift from heaven during your darkest oh, okay. days. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I thought that there was like some kind of actual term, like <laughs> Gold Star Family or... Yeah, it's called Angel Album. Great. Make it so. All right, what do you know about folklore? Uh, I know that... Taylor Swift, in the beginning part of the pandemic, because she was not touring, wrote an entire album called Folklore and then followed it up with a second album called Evermore. Indeed. She collaborated with some people, including Bon Iver. And I heard, I've heard, listened to the Folklore album, like maybe half of the Folklore album once, and it was fine. The end. Great. Cardigan, right? Cardigan's on there. Cardigan is on there. Yes, indeed. Folklore was the surprise release many people, perhaps not you, needed as COVID wave two was rearing up in the summer of 2020. Yes. It was released on July 24th at midnight Eastern. So so 9 p.m. my time. Yeah. July 23rd. Right. It was great for me because it was 10. Right before bed. (laughs) Um, I was living alone at the time. I had just come back from California and I remember I was laying out on a pool floaty on my balcony that overlooked the dumpster and I listened to it staring up at the ceiling and I thought that the songs were really sad and I was sad so I thought I was never going to listen to it again but I did. I mean the image of laying on a pool floaty on a balcony above a dumpster <laughs> the swifties are going to get me for this like feels like very doesn't feel very taylor swift it actually feels very uh, lana del rey <laughs> um you know i think that taylor is now relatable to a whole other group of distinguished intelligent humans thanks to high school musical the musical the series <laughs> those two things are completely unrelated i look forward to the day when Taylor Swift is is like old music and like people like like young millennials slash early zoomers are like uh, very upset at the younger generation whatever it's gonna wind up ca- being called being like who the fuck is Taylor Swift I listen to Gleep Glorp or whatever <laughs> Gleep Glorp <laughs> yeah I can't wait for people to like lose their minds about that like like they. Like the millennials have lost their minds about the younger generation not giving a shit about Harry Potter. I never gave a shit about it. Me neither. (laughs) Uh, Well, the thing Taylor Swift fans always say is it feels like she's reading their minds. She Mm. taps into something that we all collectively seem to be going through. 
during the lover okay. era, I was excited about a lover. And when folklore came out, I was mourning one. And so when I listened to some of those songs on that album, it was this experience of how does she know? Sure. I own a cardigan. <laughs> I get it. Uh, I think she has a superpower, though. She's very wise. Such. Yeah. I mean, I have I have complicated thoughts about Taylor, complicated thoughts and feelings about Taylor Swift. Um, the end. The end. Not the end. I mean, we're going to talk about it basically for the next seven hours or whatever. So here's what Taylor wrote about Folklore on July 23rd on Instagram, announcing it for the first time. Most of the things I had planned for the summer didn't end up happening, but there is something I hadn't planned on that did happen. And that thing is my eighth studio album, Folklore. Surprise! Tonight at midnight, I'll be releasing my entire brand new album of songs I've poured all my whims, dreams, fears, and musings into. I wrote and recorded this music in isolation, but got to collaborate with some musical heroes of mine. Aaron Desner, from The National, who has co-written or produced 11 of the 16 songs. Bonnie Vare, who co-wrote and was kind enough to sing on one with me. William Bowery, who co-wrote two with me. And Jack Antonoff, who is basically musical family at this point. Before this year, I probably would have overthought when to release this music at the, quote, perfect time. But the times we're living in keep reminding me that nothing is guaranteed. My gut is telling me that if you make something you love, you should just put it out into the world. That's the side of uncertainty I can get on board with. Love you guys so much. Heart emoji. Okay. Great. Fun fact, in that post, she mentions William Bowery, and she later revealed in the Disney Plus Folklore documentary that William Bowery was a pseudonym for her boyfriend, British actor Joe Allen. Joe Allen? Allen? I don't know how to pronounce it. Al- I don't know Alwyn? how to pronounce anyone's names. I don't even know who this person is. A-L-W-Y-N. Joe Allen. And William Bowery... Was just a pseudonym. Is, is a pseudonym. For Joe. Uh-huh. Who won his first uh-huh. Grammy for his contributions to this album. Good for Good for Joe. <laughs> yeah. As we know, Folklore won the Grammy for Album of the Year, which was Taylor's. As we know, yep. 11. We all Grammy we all knew that. And third, you didn't? No. Okay. Aviv, guess what? Folklore what? won the Grammy of the Year. What? Yeah. What her 11th? Her 11th Grammy and third album of the year. Mm-hmm. I read on the Grammy website, but it seemed to be an old, not updated post because uh, it was after she won Album of the Year for the second time, and it said that Taylor was one of only two women to ever win album of the year twice next to adele so very recent and very white yeah woof yeah not even madonna ridiculous yeah taylor said a little bit more about the album uh in a twitter photograph typed up letter okay you want to say that again (laughs) in a way that it makes sense well it's on twitter but it's not a tweet Mm Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a screen cap. Yeah. Notes app thing. Yeah. But okay. it's got foliage and it's signed. <laughs> so it's very serious. It's too serious for the notes app. It started with imagery, visuals that popped into my mind and piqued my curiosity. Stars drawn around scars, a cardigan that still bears the scent of loss 20 years later. Battleships sinking into the ocean. 20 years later, you're like 24. She's not. She's in her 30s. Is she really? Yeah, and she's a storyteller. She thinks about stuff. She she does think about stuff. Battleship sinking into the ocean, down, down, down. The tree swing in the woods of my childhood. Hushed tones of let's run away and never doing it. The sun-drenched month of August. 
sipped away like a bottle of wine, a mirrored disco ball hovering above a dance floor, a whiskey bottle beckoning, hands held through plastic, a single thread that, for better or for worse, ties you to your fate. Pretty soon, these images in my head grew faces and names and became characters. I found myself not only writing my own stories, but also writing about or from the perspective of people I've never met, people I've known, or those I wish I hadn't. An exiled man walking the bluffs of a land that isn't his own, wondering how it all went so terribly, terribly wrong. An embittered tormentor showing up at the funeral of his fallen object of obsession. A 17-year-old standing on a porch learning to apologize. Love-struck kids wandering up and down the evergreen high line. My grandfather, Dean, landing at Guadalcanal in 1942. A misfit widow getting gleeful revenge on the town that cast her out. A tale that becomes folklore is one that is passed down and whispered around, sometimes even sung about. The lines between fantasy and reality blur, and the boundaries between truth and fiction become almost indiscernible. Speculation, over time, becomes fact. Myths, ghosts, stories, and fables. Fairy tales and parables. Gossip and legend. Someone's secrets written in the sky for all to behold. In isolation, my imagination has run wild, and this album is a result. A collection of songs and stories that flowed like a stream of consciousness. Picking up a pen was my way of escaping into fantasy, history, and memory. I've told these stories to the best of my ability with all the love, wonder, and whimsy they deserve. Now it's up to you to pass them down. Taylor. I'm sure you hated that. <laughs> um, I didn't hate it, but it seems like she has she is like inventing Bruce Springsteen, right? <laughs> She's like a factory worker with not enough money to feed his starving fan. Like she heard the album Nebraska and was like, I could do that. Fair, but it, so in the Disney Plus documentary, she talked about how up until now, every album she has written was autobiographical. And mm -hmm. this was the first time that she gave herself permission. She felt like that's what fans wanted. And that's why people bought the album to like to read a page of her diary. And this was the first time that she took a step back from that and decided that she didn't have to be bound to that. And it was really a restriction that she put on herself. Yeah, and and that I totally agree with, and and kind of can identify with. There was like you know in my songwriting, I wouldn't call it a career because I've never made any money out of it. But in my songwriting hobby, I you know in twenty two thousand eight or so made a similar conscious decision of like this autobiographical stuff is less fun. Like, can you tell a full story with a song or with a with an album? And so like I I get it and I respect it and I and. I also do kind of understand the pressure that she may have put herself on uh, under to be autobiographical, considering she is known as the woman who can read every person, every listener's mind, right? That and and can make identify with that. So, like, I get it. Can there be truth telling in narrative fiction? Yeah, of course. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the way in which the album was made. Uh, in mm -hmm. folklore documentary, Taylor tells fans that because all the studios were closed, they built a recording studio in her house with Jack Antonoff being in New York, not there. You can't go into studios now because they're all closed and I've never recorded anywhere else. Um, and I know that other people do this all the time, so it's actually not that special, but I'm freaking out over it. Yes, I, I agree that people do that all the time. It's actually not that special. We've built a home studio in my house. And so it's like... I'm going to do vocals today in my house. It's, I'm very excited about it. 
Okay, so over there is where my recording booth is, and then on the other side of the wall, Laura! Hey! Yeah! Jack? Holy shit. It's like you're right there, but instead you're in New York. I'm freaking out. We've never done this. This is crazy. Some snippets from Pitchfork, some of which I agree with and some I don't because I'm not pretending to be impartial here. Folklore will forever be known as Taylor Swift's indie album, a sweater weather record released on a whim in the blue heat of this lonely summer filled with cinematic love songs in search of a film soundtrack. You want to say something? I don't think that people know what the word indie means, but (laughs) other than that, no. There are those who already dislike folklore on principle, who assume it's another calculated attempt on Swift's part to position her career as just so. How dare she? What 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 do you mean? What what do they mean by just so? I I like don't understand what the that criticism is. I think the argument is that Taylor Swift people think that she tries to be the master of manipulation of her own persona and people have said before that you know she plays the victim or she's this or she's why is that that well the playing the victim is is whatever like but like let's just talk about her musical brand like of course she does that that is what everyone does she's a pop artist like get the fuck over it I know. I don't. I really don't actually don't understand the sentence. And then the "how dare she" is in parentheses. Yeah, it doesn't. Which it doesn't I make think any means sense. the yeah. writer is like on on our side. Yeah, but I I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anyone who has ever been like, "Huh, how dare Taylor Swift release a pop record that sounds poppy that people are gonna want to listen to?" Fuck her. I don't know because it's it's a meanwhile. Meanwhile, meanwhile, fans will hold it up as tangible proof that their leader can do just about anything. Parentheses also a stretch. I agree with that though, because like it doesn't doesn't sound altogether all that different from the Taylor Swift brand. Like I know that she did kind of a more rock and upbeat record with 1989, but like it's all kind of Taylor Swift to me. And Reputation was different. Oh yeah, what was that hit from Reputation that it was horrible? Look what you made me do. Yeah. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that that didn't work for me and maybe <laughs> I never listened to Reputation so maybe it does sound very different than than the other stuff, but I was just like this single sucks so I'm not going to listen to it. There's some good songs in Reputation. I I believe you. Reputation was actually my gateway drug. To Taylor? Yeah. Oh, mine was 1989. Have I been a Swifty before since longer than you? I guess. So I never even listened to 1989 until I lived with Chelsea. So that was mm. not that Friend long of the ago. Show. When I was in uh, Berkeley and I would go for runs every day and would be like running out my like aggression and listening to 1989. And it was a savior. I really like 1989. and I th- But I think that every song is maybe like 30 seconds too long. Strongly disagree. Well, that's fine. You're going to have to listen to Reputation now. Great. I listened to Perfect Blue yesterday. True Blue? Yep. True Blue. Perfect Blue is a movie. Okay. While it's true that folklore pushes the limits of Swift's sound in a particular, perhaps unexpected direction, her reference points feel more like mainstream, quote-unquote, indie homage than innovation, taking cues from her collaborators' work and bits of nostalgia. At its best, folklore asserts something that has been true from the start of Swift's career. Her biggest strength is her storytelling, her well-honed songwriting craft meeting the vivid whimsy of her imagination. The music these stories are set to is subject to change, so long as it can be rooted in these traditions. 
You can tell that this is what drives Swift by the way she molds her songs, cramming specific details into curious cadences, bending the lines to her will. It's especially apparent on Folklore, where the production, mostly by Desner, with Jack Antonoff's pop flair occasionally in the mix, is more minimal than she typically goes for. Her words rise above the sparse pianos, moody guitars, and sweeping orchestration as quotable as ever. Yep, I agree with that. No objection. Great. Of the song Last Great American Dynasty, which is why we're here today. I forgot. (laughs) I literally forgot that that was the song we were doing today. Pitchfork says, filled with historical details and Americana imagery, you can see the song play out in your mind like a storybook, but it also effectively makes a point about society's treatment of brash women. What? Are you ready to hear the song? Yeah, I don't know that I've ever heard the song before, but like that... Okay, you teed me up real real good. Let's do it. Rebecca rode up on the afternoon train. It was sunny. Her salt box house on the coast took a mind off St. Louis. Bill was the heir to the Standard Oil name. And money. And the town said how to Divorce, they do it The wedding was charming If a little gauche There's only so far new money goes They picked out a home And called it Holiday House Their parties were tasteful If a little loud The doctor had told him to settle down It must have been her fault His heart gave out There goes the last great American dynasty Who knows if she never showed up what could have been There goes the maddest woman this town has ever seen She had a marvelous time ruining everything Rebecca gave up on the City. Filled the pool with champagne and swam with the big names and blew through the money on the boys and the ballet and losing on card game bets with Dolly. And they said, There goes the last great American dynasty. Who knows if she never showed up? What could have been? woman this town has ever seen She had a marvelous time ruining everything They say she was seen on occasion Pacing the rock staring out at the midnight sea And in a feud with her neighbor She stole his dog and died a key lime green Fifty years is a long time Then it was bought by me. I do. Passive voice. There goes the loudest woman this town has ever seen. I had 
fun. That was a positive thing you just said. I don't dislike Taylor Swift. Okay, reactions. Reactions. Uh, don't love the passive voice. Then it was bought by me. See, there, there, there are a couple of. I mean, like if if I was judging this in like a poetry class, if I was teaching a poetry class, there's like some of the some of the the rhythm the rhythmic parts like are a little bit of a stretch, but in general, it's really good. Okay. I know that she's like a like a hundred millionaire, and I'm not. But you know, this is my opinion of which I asked you for. Thank you. So this song, the cover, (laughs) this song has it all for me. Sure. Bold, brilliant, independent women, real estate, lavish parties (laughs) on the Rhode Island coast. (laughs) Real estate. Uh, Yeah, you know how I am. I do know how you are. <laughs> you fucking love real estate. I do. And houses and architecture and historical things. Yeah, it didn't the 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 architecture of the house didn't wasn't really part of the <laughs> Did you listen to like a like a fourth verse talked about the wainscoting or something? <laughs> wainscoting is chuggy. Is it? I heard that on TikTok. Is Taylor Swift chuggy? Never. I feel like she eventually will be. Yeah, she's like probably like right there on the cusp. She probably already is. Um, I went to college on the coast of Rhode Island in Bristol, and I lived there the summer after I graduated, and we would take day trips to Newport almost every day with the family that I nannied for. And then I would return every year for Newport Folk Fest, which is mm-hmm. where I happened to meet you. Yes, indeed. Yeah, you made a comment on the last episode or, or on the Madonna episode how it's like every song I pick, it's like matters very, to me. Very, <laughs> yeah, very personal, very autobiographical. Um, so this one is no different. Of course. I didn't listen to it, to it when I was a child, but it, it pulled all my heartstrings in the right way from nostalgic stuff. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting story for sure. I, I like, like the, the way that the story is told. I like the situation that is created i i like the the chorus great so the song launches with rebecca wrote up on the afternoon train it was sunny her salt box house on the coast took her mind off st louis bill was the heir to the standard oil name and the money and the town said how did a middle class divorcee do it should we mention that taylor swift comes from money is that relevant maybe i'm not sure i haven't really thought about that uh because the comment that she's making is about the reputation of Rebecca. Mm-hmm. And so, but is Bill her father? No. I I mean I know not literally, but like her dad is the is the is like a part of a bank dynasty. Taylor Swift's dad. Yeah. Right. So Taylor isn't criticizing Rebecca for marrying into the money. No. She's criticizing the people that criticize Rebecca for doing that. Yeah, and 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 criticizing like Bill has a heart problem and dies of a heart attack, and it must be Rebecca's fault because she's such a wild woman. Well, you don't know the whole story yet, but I'm going to tell it to you. Is this a real? Is this a true story? I was just going to ask you, who are Rebecca and Bill? I thought that they were completely made up. Wrong. Oh, mind blowing. They are Rebecca, who often went by Betty, and William Hale Harkness, who were married in New York in 1947. Betty and William Harkness. 
William Hale Harkness. Yeah, William Harkness. I thought William Harkness was the was the pseudonym of her boyfriend. Um, no, 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 no. That was William Bowery. Oh, excuse me. Both Williams. Okay, so William Harkness and his and Rebecca, aka Betty Harkness, are two human beings that actually well, lived and got married in New York in 1947. Will was the heir to Standard Oil fortune, and Rebecca, I'm going to tell you her whole story, so. The wedding was charming if a little gauche. There's only so far new money goes. They picked out a home and called it Holiday House. What is Holiday House? Uh, The name of their home? It's Taylor's 11,000 square foot Watch Hill, Rhode Island mansion, which she bought in 2013 for $17.75 million, reportedly paid for it in cash when she was 23. Wait, so, okay, but you got ahead of yourself. I was expecting to get there at, then it was bought by me. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is the true story of the people that owned the house before Taylor? Yes. So, this is interesting, but kind of undercuts the idea that we were talking about before of like, oh man, I can, be, I can tell stories that are made up. This is not a made up story at all. This is a true story. Right. Like on the documentary, she makes it clear that illicit affairs was made up, but this is a true sure. story, but not about her. Okay. I mean, I, I, I think it's super cool. And I like, I like that idea. Because she, she said other people's stories, people I've met, people I wish I didn't met, and made up people. I don't know. Whatever. She said a bunch of stuff. Okay. Okay. So the house was built in 1930. The mansion features 700 feet of shoreline and views of Little Narragansett Bay. And according to the Zillow listing, there are eight bedrooms, though some sources report seven, eight fireplaces and a pool in the back. This, you are literally just doing this song so you could talk to me about Zillow. (laughs) I can talk to you about Zillow anytime I want. That is also true. Please go to the drone watch hill link. Oh my God. Okay. Okay, so you sent me a link to a, like a drone flyover of this actual house called Holiday House. So you see the one with the pool, the big white one that's right in the middle of the beach on the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. That's the house. Yeah, so the, the pool is like down a sloping yeah. guy. Yeah. Cool. Also, the, the title of this YouTube video is Westerly Rhode Island, including Taylor Swift's house. That's kind of <laughs> fucked up, man. Yeah, it like, is. Leave her alone. <laughs> I know. It's a giant house. It's a very nice. It looks like a house that you would expect Taylor Swift to live in. Like like rich but also like a little a little weathering heightsy. And she was 23. Like damn, girl. Straight cash. So proud. Okay. So yeah, I just wanted to give you the aerial view. That's nice. So a bit about Watch Hill. Watch Hill is situated on a narrow peninsula in southwest Rhode Island, surrounded on three sides by the sea. On the east and south, it faces Block Island, and on the northwest, the Pawtucket River opens up to Little Narragansett Bay. It's said Mm -hmm. to be the highest point of direct waterfront land on the entire eastern seaboard. It's situated on the bluff for which Watch Hill was named. The area was occupied by the native Niantic people in the 17th century, and colonists used the hill as a lookout in both the Seven Year War also known as the French and Indian War in America, and the American Revolution. Cool. So, womp womp. Yeah, I mean, right. I'm just telling you why it got its name. Right, okay. There's some really great photos of it, starting on page 14 of this Watch Hill book. So this is a 222-page book from the Watch Hill Conservatory, conservancy.org, and... It feels very, very Rutherford Fallsy, right? There's like, our family came here and blah, blah, blah. 
from this person who did a handshake deal with this person. <laughs> yeah, literally. I read it. Looking south from above Curtis Point to Foster's Cove, Batty Point, the harbor, Napar Tree, and Lighthouse Point. I feel like it should be Battery Point. I feel like that might be a typo. Maybe. It says Batty. It's beautiful. There's so much water. These houses are insane. Never took Taylor Swift for a Rhode Islander. So you don't know about all of her shenanigans in Rhode Island? No, I don't. <laughs> does, she, does she really have shenanigans in Rhode Island? Yeah. Number four, Taylor has hosted some epic parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Including the infamous Tamerica 4th of July party. Okay, what is Tamerica? What is the infamous Tamerica 4th of July party? It's the inception of hashtag squad goals, in my opinion. I die. Okay, great. Thank you. Some people thought that. that at the time, Kim Kardashian West leaked the Kanye phone call in response to Taylor's party. Okay, so we got to back up. We got to back up. Back in the day, Taylor Swift won album of the year over Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Kanye West drunkenly got up on stage. Taylor, I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best albums of all time. And then there was a phone call where Taylor was apparently forgiving Kim. This is like where some of her like duplicitousness rumor came from, which is that she like forgave Kim on the phone, but in public was like, how could Kanye do this? And so, and that this phone call, I've seen the video, right? Of like, Kim in the studio on the phone with Taylor on speakerphone, and they're just like chatting it up and having a grand old time. Okay, a few facts. Tell me. Taylor was 19 years old when Kanye West went up on stage and interrupted her Grammy speech. She said on. Perfect, totally normal thing to do. She said on her Miss Americana documentary that she was already so shocked because she, it was it was MTV Mo- Music Awards that's what it was. Yeah, video video music awards, right? It wasn't Grammys, yeah. Because she felt like she was she had imposter syndrome because she wrote a country album and she didn't even like think she belonged. She's super young, really insecure, and then Kanye came up and she felt like starstruck and then he started saying all of that and then everyone started booing him but she thought they were booing her. Sure. And when I watched the video of him doing that, because I saw it way back in the day and I, I didn't like Taylor at the time. I was like a different person and so was she and I, I didn't care. Um, but when I rewatched it with a little bit of compassion for a person that I now admire, I was like, holy fucking shit, what he stole from her in that moment. And you can see it on her face. And then she still tries to be friends with them. Mm -hmm. So they call her up and he's like, yo, 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 I want to write the song about you. Oh, yeah. There were like diss tracks involved. So the call he calls her to say, I remember him being like, yo, I want to write. He either said I might have sex with you or that I made you famous. So he says one of the things to her. I think he says both of them in the song. But he says both of them in the song. But he says one thing to her with less profanity. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, totally cool. So it says, to all my South Side that know me best, I feel like Taylor Swift might owe me sex. (laughs) (laughs) That's not me. Okay, yeah. Oh, well, this is the thing why I'm calling you because you got an army. You own a country of mother 
two billion people basically that if you felt that it's funny and cool and like hip-hop and felt like you know just the college dropout and the artists like yay that you love then i think that people would be like way into it i mean yeah. i need to think about it because i just need to like you know you hear something for the first time and you just need to think about it yeah um because it is absolutely crazy i'm glad it's not mean though it doesn't feel mean um mm. but like oh my god the build-up you gave it i thought it was gonna be like that stupid dumb like, but it's not. I think this is a really cool thing to have. Uh, I know, definitely. it's like a compliment. <laughs> yeah. I, I had this line where I said, and my wife really didn't like this one because we tried to make it nicer. So I said, as far as my South Side that know me best, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. And my wife was really not with that one. She was way more into the she owes you sex. But then the O, I, the O part was like the feminist group type that I was like, ah. That's the part yeah. that kind of, I mean, they're both really edgy, but the, like, that's the only thing about that line is that it's like, gonna, it's just the feminists are gonna come out. But I mean, you don't give a f so. Yeah, like, basically. Well, what I give a f about is just you as a person and as a friend i want things that That's make sweet. you feel good i don't want to do rap that makes people feel bad and then the song comes out and it's different it's a different tone all my south side niggas that know me best i feel like me and taylor might still have sex why i made that bitch famous Goddamn. i made that bitch famous and people really like it's like a trump rally like people were really running with it and they were chanting fuck taylor swift like at kanye concerts and she came out with a statement that she didn't condone the song or whatever and then they leaked the audio of her after of this party call. after this fourth yeah. of july party so all of that it's like like it sounds like rich people problems but also like get a life problems like the people who care about fuck like chanting fuck taylor swift at a kanye concert like get a fucking life also fuck you kanye west you didn't make taylor yeah. swift famous you did not all i mean i mean yes but but it seems like a it seems like a squabble between rich people that like he can say whatever he wants in the, in a song because like whatever and she has the right to be pissed about it too like like but it's also the same misogynistic bullshit that she's been up against her whole life sure i i'm i'm not saying that that's not the case but like it's weird that he i mean he's like a mentally ill person but it's weird that he's like i'm gonna say what i want to say about who i want to say it and about like literally ruining this girl's this 19 year old girl's moment when she won an an album and and trying to delegitimize it because i'm a crazy person and then but when you're right. she he says, actually is mentally ill, so I do want to acknowledge Ill. that and that how much of him is just an asshole and how much of him is illness. Like I think I think his mental illness plus his like riches and notoriety have precluded him from learning that his actions have consequences. Okay. That was a very long tangent. Sorry. It's okay. I have I have many, many, many feelings about celebrity feuds in general. Like we are we as fans are not obligated to take sides. No, we're not. We don't know these people at all. Also very true. Okay, so you can click on the link. So it's a Vogue article from 2016. 
titled Taylor Swift yet again throws the perfect girl squad bash for the 4th of July. And there's a picture. See anyone you know? Yeah, a bunch of people. So Taylor Swift is in the middle pointing toward the sky with fireworks in the background. Seems very well, well timed. Is that Uzo Aduba next to her from Orange is the New Black? Because Ruby Rose is on her right. Oh, fuck. Fuck. What is her name? Ryan Reynolds' wife? Yeah, Blake Lively. Not that I'm defining. Blake Lively, yeah. Not that I'm defining her by who she's married to, but I couldn't remember her name. That's. I think those are all the people that I recognize, which is like about a third of them. There's a lot of people in this picture. Okay, keep scrolling. Keep scrolling. Oh, there's a gallery. Okay, so next picture is her on a water someone on a water slide with tom hiddleston yeah it is loki this was their this was their like they were in a relationship right yeah yeah yeah. that was like a thing he had the taylor t-shirt yeah and then three red white and blue striped people definitely carrie delvine in the middle taylor swift on the right and then some tall girl that i don't recognize oh here we go like a dozen girls in bikinis in the beach Okay, this uh, one I actually got all the names for. <laughs> you got all the names for yeah. them? It's Carly Kloss. I don't know who Carly Kloss is. Oh. Who's Carly Kloss? A supermodel that's super cute. She's the okay. one in the red on the right. All the way on the right. Sure. Okay, so we have Carly They all kind of look the same. Carly Kloss. Except for Ruby Rose, who has a lot of tattoos. Cara Delevingne, Gigi Hadid, Ruby Rose, Harley Gooseman, don't know her, Abigail Anderson, Martha Hunt, Tom Hiddleston. And Tom Hiddleston is not. Is at in the this party. Picture. You're right. Yes. I lied. I just I was like I just I got some like, information <laughs> on who's at this party. <laughs> I know for a fact that Tom Hiddleston is not in this and picture. And Ryan Reynolds, who is also sure because she because he's married to Blake Lively. But there is a picture with them in it. I think. Let's keep going. Yeah, there's a Blake Lively picture. There's one with the boys. I thought. Ah, okay. With the boys, there's Taylor and Tom Hiddleston nuzzling. Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively looking extremely uncomfortable, and a couple of two jamokers on the end who I don't recognize. Who are those people? At first, I was like, are those Taylor's parents? <laughs> but they're too no, young. No, they're young. <laughs> this might be Brittany Lamana, right? Because that's who's the, the, the photo is courtesy of Brittany Lamana. Ryan Reynolds looks like, how the fuck did I get here? He looks happy. I was in the proposal with Sandra Bullock. How the fuck did I do this? <laughs> Um, so that was Tay America. Tay America. Weird. Naming a party after yourself is weird. No, she didn't. Like, tabloids did. Okay. Still. Don't like it. Okay. Bad name. Back to the lyrics. The parties were tasteful, if a little loud. The doctor had told him to settle down. It must have been her fault. His heart gave out. And they said, there goes the last great American dynasty. Who knows if she never showed up, what could have been? There goes the maddest woman this town has ever seen. She had a marvelous time ruining everything. Sure. So clearly she identifies with Rebecca because she ruins everything, according to the tabloids and Kanye West. (laughs) Who cares what Kanye says? A lot of people, sadly. Well, I'm going to tell you everything I know about Rebecca. Okay. Tell me everything you know about Rebecca. In 1915, Rebecca West, no relation to Kanye that I know of, was born in St. Louis. A likely story. <laughs> Kanye's got like in, in his basement with like red string being like Rebecca West. Kanye West. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Her father, Alan Tarwater West, was a stockbroker and her mother, also named Rebecca, 
was a quote unquote trophy wife. I do not. I think that Alan's name is racist. Tarwater. Yeah, it's it just sounds bad. It doesn't. Um, sound I think good. it's just like a, it's like an oil thing, but still sounds fucking really not good. Not good. I agree with that statement. Um, I also think using the term trophy wife is not good. Definitely not. You said quote trophy wife, so I assumed that <laughs> that went without saying. Okay, but yes, good. trophy wife is a is a bad thing to call. Like it, we're we're saying the quiet part out loud when we're just objectifying women. Oh, she's a trophy. I keep her on my shelf. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just trying to paint the full picture of how the women in these stories are portrayed. Mm -hmm. So, little Rebecca, our Rebecca, Holiday House Rebecca, Mm -hmm. her grandfather founded the St. Louis Union Trust Company, an historic bank in St. Louis. Okay. So, so Taylor's dad (laughs) is a banking dynasty guy. The Times called her family emotionally frigid and reported that her nanny was hired. (laughs) Wait. Okay. How do you have to live your life for the New York Times? To be like, your family's emotionally frigid. Just you wait. The Times called her family emotionally frigid and reported that her nanny was hired because she had worked in a, quote, insane asylum. Rebecca attended finishing school at Fermata School for Girls in Aiken, South Carolina. Other famous students of the school included Diana Barrymore, Doris Duke, Margaret Roosevelt, and Elizabeth Kennedy. A best-selling author, journalist, and magazine editor, Craig Unger, who at one point was the editor-in-chief of Boston Magazine, where I used to work, albeit Mm. not at the same time, he wrote a biography of Rebecca that was released in 1989. It's called Blue Blood. Wow. So so, so she's not an unknown person. No. She's had biographies written about her. She had a biography written about her. Yeah. Yeah. It's out of print now. It can only be purchased, used for six ninety nine on Amazon. Naturally, I wasn't able to do so, but hey, support the show, and maybe we can do a bonus episode deep dive into the book. Yeah, don't buy it from Amazon, though. Okay, someone donate it to me. Jeff, Jeff Bezos can pay his I couldn't find it anywhere else. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, fuck Jeff Bezos. Agreed. Plenty of news outlets have quoted the book, though, one of them being Vogue, which reported that according to Blue Blood, Rebecca wrote in her scrapbook that at Fermata, she set out to do everything bad. Great. An example of her mischiefness, putting mineral oil in the punch at her sister's debutante ball. Mineral oil? Yeah. What happens if you drink mineral oil? I don't know what mineral oil is. You don't know what it is? No. What is mineral oil? Well, if you drink it, it's like three ninjas. Instant it's like diarrhea. Instant diarrhea. Is that what they put in the bad guy's pizza in, in Three Ninjas? No, they put instant diarrhea in it. Duh. Oh, t- great. Thank you for the Three Ninjas reference. And I think it was a Coke. A soda. I just remember, I remember the, the scene. I don't remember what they poisoned. I'm sorry that, I, that you're embarrassing me on my Three Ninjas knowledge. All right, moving on. Rebecca and her finishing school friends dubbed themselves the Bitch Pack, which is where we get the lyric, Rebecca gave up oh. on the Rhode Island set forever, flew in all the Bitch Pack friends from the city. I just assumed that Taylor was referring to her own friends. <laughs> uh, no, that's called Squad. Right, Squad. Rebecca had three husbands. Vogue has her saying that she married her first husband, photographer W. Dickinson Pierce, because she had nothing else to do. Love that. I'm bored. Come here, W. Dickinson Pierce. Yeah. I need a good dick. I, that's like a weird, that's like, that is a very, a very, it's a triple entendre name. Dickinson Pierce. Mm-hmm. Dick piercing. Mm. What is the name for a dick piercing? Isn't there a, a name? Prince for, Albert. Mm. 
Or a ladder if you got three in a row. I don't know anything about that. Okay. Bill, a.k.a. William Hale Harkness, was her second husband. The New York Times wrote a scathing eulogy of Rebecca in 1988 that was packaged as a book review of Blue Blood. Okay, so he's... So, okay. Yes, tell me. The article is titled, Is There a Chic Way to Go? And I'll read most of it during the duration of this journey. But for now, here's what the writer, Barbara Grizzuti Harrison, said about Rebecca and Bill. Barbara Grizzuti Harrison. She chose for her second husband, the Standard Oil heir, William Hale Harkness, who enjoyed a lofty social status, and as her own family did not. He appears to have been an embarrassing sort of man. He wrote and privately published a book called Totem Topies, which he described as a conglomeration of uninteresting misinformation, and followed that with a book called Ho-Hum the Fisherman, which he said did not have the excuse even of literary merit. We are told by Unger... Craig Unger, who is mm-hmm. an uncomfortable stranger in the world of the rich, unused to deciphering nuances of caste, that the Harkness's seven-year marriage was a happy one. Little evidence is given in support of this thesis, except that the two wrote a song together called Giggling With My Feet. What? The, wait, okay. <laughs> I have, wait, we gotta go back a couple, a couple of things. So this is the thing I wanted to say before you started reading this quote is like, they, this is supposed to be a review of a book, but they're basically like reviewing this person's marriage, right? That's, or that's life. the situation. Her whole life. Yeah, her whole life. And so, so the book said, the, the review says, quote, supposedly they had a happy marriage, but there's no evidence to support their happiness except for a song <laughs> that they wrote called Giggling with My Feet. <laughs> okay. 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 First of all, how do you, what evidence do you need of happiness? Like, what performative fucking happiness do you need, guy? It's and, a woman, Barbara. Oh, Barbara. Barbara Grizzuti, <sighs> right? But like, okay, but so what, what performative happiness do you need? And how is it not fulfilled by co-writing a song <laughs> called Giggling With My Feet? Right, and both of these people are dead. Barbara hasn't met them. She takes a lot of leaps in this reporting. I mean, clearly. <laughs> so I'm going to read a bunch from Barbara as we go on. Uh, I'm great. sure this you're going to have a lot mad, to like, say. Like the fucking Rolling Stone Madonna article that we read. Yeah. 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 Anger. <laughs> Anger and madness. After Bill died in 1954, just seven years into their marriage, Rebecca became one of the wealthiest women in the world. Which is not allowed. Not allowed. Yeah. Shortly after his death, it was rumored that she was cast out of certain social circles. Okay. Indicating that she was never accepted there to begin with and was just there because she was his husband. Yeah. The wedding was charming, but a little gauche. There's Mm. only so far new money goes. Haven't you seen Titanic? Yeah, yeah. But he's old money. Yeah, but they just don't accept these little trophy wives. Okay. So Bill dies. She renovates Holiday House. She installed... Big mistake. Big mistake. Huge mistake, Betty. Yeah, I can, I can, dude, I can tell you ahead of time, any kind of renovation, you're like, oh my God, like you don't deserve this money and you're changing your husband's house, which you don't deserve. No, got, you got problems. They only bought that house because she used to summer there with her family and she introduced him to the place and they loved Doesn't it. Doesn't matter. His money. I know, I know. I she know. killed him. I know. So, yeah, so she installed eight kitchens, 21 baths. She installed 21 baths? How many baths did it have have originally? I honestly couldn't tell you. 
How how bad do you need to shit to need 21 bathrooms? I guess she wanted to have a lot of house guests and everyone have their own bath. There That's was probably so a lot many. of en-suites. I guess so. The Times snarkily deduced that this arrangement effectively kept her from having to see her three children on anything like a regular <laughs> basis. <laughs> okay, fuck you. She had a salon of sorts. She traveled a lot. She fancied herself a composer. She acquired a guru. Also, a yogi. She married again and again. So, okay. So we just, like, hate women is what we're saying. Barbara, whose side are you on? Clearly not. <laughs> clearly not Betty's. So the next photo in that you've got is the house post-reno. Post-reno in the, in the 50s or whatever. Right. Oh, it's nice. <laughs> it's big. It's huge, huge house. It's huge. It's way bigger I, I, than it is now. What's the square footage at this time? I tried to find that out and couldn't. Even in that huge book by the Watch Hill Conservancy, it didn't say. I wonder if we can like do some math, right? Yeah. So, do you, do we know what it is at, at, for Taylor? Yes, eleven thousand square feet. Okay, so I'm looking at the Taylor drone again mm-hmm. and comparing it to. It looks like an additional maybe two-thirds from this edition, right? An additional, like, two-thirds. So, so 11,000 times 1.66 is 18,206. So, I'm going to say, like, close to 20,000, 18, 19, 20,000 square feet. Yeah. I would, I would say 20. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a huge house. Okay. So, you know, we have the time saying she fancied herself a composer, blah, blah, blah. Rebecca was a musician who studied under Nadia Boulanger. I don't know who Nadia Boulanger is, but sounds sounds her name's Nadia, so it sounds legit. She's a celebrated French teacher of composition and the first woman to conduct many major orchestras in America and Europe, including the BBC Symphony, the Boston Symphony, New York Philharmonic, and Philadelphia Orchestras. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Rebecca also studied at the Mann's College of Music mm-hmm. and had written a number of popular songs. Like Giggling with my feet. (laughs) I tried to find them, but the problem is when Taylor Swift writes a song about a person and then you Google (laughs) that person's name and songs, you get 57-page Google results of Taylor Swift. Yeah, thanks a lot, Taylor. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Rebecca was also a dancer. Reportedly at the suggestion of famed violinist Yehudi Menuhin, she also took up yoga to improve her musical technique and ported a yoga teacher, BKS Iyengar, to Holiday House in the summer of 1956 to teach her and her three children. That's pretty early for yoga. And Iyengar is famous, but also fallen from grace, like all of these yoga gurus have for being predators. Like sexual predators? Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot, Betty. (laughs) (laughs) This is so ridiculous. So the Times is like, ah, she pretends like she's a composer. Meanwhile, she studied with like, two of the greatest musicians in the universe at the time. And the one of them was like, you're so good that you should also be a dancer. She had always danced, but, uh, she, she was very, she was talented. There's no, yeah. If ands or buts are about that. And yeah, it's like, she just does a little yoga with fucking BKS Iyengar, one of the most famous yogis in the world. So she's like Forrest Gumping her way through her life. I think she's like the great fucking Gatsby, but she's a woman. Mm-hmm. 
So back to the lyrics. Rebecca gave up on the Rhode Island set forever, flew in all the bitch pack friends from the city, filled the pool with champagne and swam with the big names and blew through the money on the boys in the ballet and losing on card game bets with Dolly. Yes. And it's and it's not Dolly D O L L Y. This is Dolly D A L I. I'm bec- I can see that because of the lyrics are in the video. Th- does that mean Salvador Dali. There's no other kind of Dali, right? I don't know if there's another Dali, but this is the fucking Salvador Dali. So she's playing cards with Salvador Dali. I I can't imagine he'd be very good at cards. (laughs) It's like they're melting. This two is an eight. So the reference of losing on card game bets with Dolly might have been Taylor playing with her imagination a little bit here because there doesn't seem to be a record of literal card game bets. But mm-hmm. there is one historical transaction between the two on record in which Harkness, Rebecca, purchased mm-hmm. Dolly's 1965 Chalice of Life, which is a butterfly bejeweled vessel of 18 karat gold, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, and lapis lazuli with fuck? moving mechanisms that fluttered the butterfly wings. So, so but what was it? like? A, oh, click on like it. A, I sent you the link. Okay. So, yeah, this thing looks like a sculpture of a tree. Yes. With an apple at the top? Kind of. Butterflies? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Dig it. So losing with losing at card games. Taylor is fictionalizing that she knew Dali and bought a, a sculpture from him, but maybe they didn't play cards. Okay, sure, great. So she bought that for $250,000. Which, in what year? It's a 1965 sculpture. So 1965. This is anytime there's like money in old movies, this is what I do. $250,000? Yeah. So in 2021 money, that would be $2.1 million. Wow. Okay. So then I also sent you a photo. So I couldn't find any record of the card game bets, but I found a photo that had no caption that I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure is her and Salvador Dali. I mean, it's definitely her, but you look at it. That's him. Oh, that's definitely Salvador Dali. Yeah. Right. So, but so there's no caption, but it looks like they're on like a television show, right? right? Someone's holding a microphone to them. He's holding her hand mm-hmm. very casually. It's super weird. It's from Wiki Commons. Salvador Dali was on like a bunch of weird game shows, which is like a very strange. Like Dali to me feels like someone who didn't exist in the time of TV game shows, but he was on like To Tell the Truth, which is that game show. Or he was on like some celebrity like panel game shows, like To Tell the Truth, which was that game show from um, the beginning of Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. which is weird. I don't like that idea that he lived at the same time as that. Jack Abagnale Jr. What a good movie. <laughs> Spielberg's last good movie. Not Abagnale, not Abagnale. Abagnale. So we already know who the bitch pack is. Mm-hmm. Her, well, not not literally, but just her friends from the city. Yeah. We don't and have their names. Finishing school. Right. According to Vogue, Blue Blood recalls that Rebecca once filled her pool with Dom Perignon and filled her fish tank with goldfish and scotch. Interesting. Other sources say Rebecca cleaned her pool with Dom Perignon. That doesn't make sense, but sure. It makes more sense to fill it than to <laughs> clean it with Dom Perignon. In the early 1960s, Rebecca became a patron of the Joffrey Ballet. But blowing the money on the ballet and the boys, sure. Uh, The Joffrey Ballet performed for JFK at the White House per his invitation. Yeah, this feels kind of Camelot-y. If I had to guess before hearing this song 
who the last great American dynasty was, I thought it was going to be about the Kennedys. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. New England. I didn't even know about New England. I just like, what was the, what was the American dynasty? Here's more from Barb at the Times. She was surrounded by a group her son Alan described as all the fairies flying off the floor, the blackmailing lawyers, the weirdos, the people in trances. Says a dancer, we were the favorites. We were the loved ones. In 1961, Rebecca Harkness became the sponsor of the late Robert Joffrey's small ballet troupe. She did this in grand, if occasionally Marie Antoinette-ish style. Generous, wasteful, willful, demanding, and delusional. She broke with Joffrey to form the Harkness Ballet when he refused to perform the compositions she insisted on writing. In the eyes of many, she had betrayed him. Costumes, sets, musical scores... Mr. Unger writes, Many of the best dancers, the entire repertory, even the works choreographed by Joffrey himself, were owned by her foundation. This is interesting. So she's starting to become like a Norma Desmond kind of character, um, which I just looked up is like from this era, right? Mm -hmm. Like Sunset Boulevard came out in 1950. She feels like, you know, that's like the basically the plot of Sunset Boulevard is... Norma Desmond like writes her own movie for Cecily DeMille to like direct for her as her big comeback, which like is not exactly the same situation because Rebecca was like a a trained composer, but like there there isn't nothing to the to the idea that she have may have gone a little bit mad. <laughs> I'm going to remain neutral on that. I'm just going to sure. let the autobiographers and the journalists tell their side. Sure. Well, the journalists are clearly clearly impartial right and i'm obviously going to say my opinion about them about what the journalists have written but i i don't i didn't know rebecca so i just gathered as much information as i could about yeah i'm just trying to process it all yeah no i think there is something there to that comparison um i mean the sunset boulevard to me felt a lot sadder because she was alone in that house Mm -hmm. and she was so desperate or she seemed so desperate and she was out of money yeah right that was the that was the thing uh and rebecca i think blew through the money as well did she really so that was that was for real yeah yeah we'll we'll get to that so yeah rebecca did launch the harkness ballet in 1964 she housed it in a training school in manhattan called the harkness house for ballet arts and she also refurbished a former movie house near lincoln center and later renamed it the harkness theater to host annual seasons of the harkness ballet and also traveling dance troops from across the world according to vogue she poured money into harkness house a dance studio meant to mimic the grandeur of european ballet schools outfitting it with a marble staircase silk shades and a crystal chandelier her reasoning i hope the beauty of harkness house will persuade some of these people that ballet need not be dingy and that by their patronage they are contributing to the splendid and glamorous interesting that was her quote yeah the ballet school I grew up in was really dingy. Really uh, taking the idea of a socialite like to its logical conclusion, right? Like <laughs> yeah. actually being a socialite. Yeah. You you grew up in a ballet school, like Black Widow. <laughs> I mean, I I went there three days a week, and it was. I had nothing to eat so... but a bowl of potato. <laughs> it was horrible. It was like not that bad, but ask anyone who went there. Ask my friends. It was sure brutal. Um, it was run by these two drunk old ladies who were verbally and emotionally, if not physically abusive at times. And it was ah, so sweaty. <laughs> yeah, it was ballet. 
So, as alluded to by the Times, Rebecca composed music for the ballet company she sponsored. Like she was a composer. Right. And and so, but there's this like there there's this disdain from the it's the Times, right? Who's just like she demanded, and then she didn't get what she wanted, so she left, and it was a betrayal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have no idea, really. I'm uh, just reporting the facts here. So there's a photo that I sent you that is of Rebecca and her ballet troupe outside of Holiday House, but this is before the renovation. So. All of the accounts are like, Bill died, she renovated, and then she didn't start Harkness Ballet until 64, and this is supposed to be the first year students of Harkness Ballet, and so here it is in 64, allegedly, and the house isn't yet renovated. Yeah, so it they're like on the pier, it's like very 60s they're in their, they're in their leotards and ballet pants and she's there with a couple of old men it's pot are we sure that the house hasn't been renovated yet or like maybe this is the side view of the house no i'm sure i've looked at them right next to each other so this is the middle if you want to look at that other one look at it quickly because you can see the arches and interesting immediately oh yeah just like where the ocean is yeah they're up against the seawall right in the middle junk part of the house so yeah, so the, so the timeline is a little fuzzy here, mm-hmm. but but it all contributes to what to like sh- as soon as before the body was even cold, she spent all of her money on this palace for herself, right? Which is clearly yeah. not true according to this photographic evidence. So the new company allegedly accompanied her to Washington in September of 1965 when they performed for president and mrs johnson at the white house Mm. on a new portable east room stage that rebecca presented to the house so she brought her own stage with her and presented it i'm surprised the the times wasn't like she demanded to perform on her own (laughs) stage and didn't even pick up after herself she just left it there (laughs) right and this information wasn't even from the times i actually forget where i got it from but i can tell by what font it's in i kind of like color code different things so okay. the statement that i just said was difficult to fact check that she brought her own stage yes it was written about in some online article and then it was it was in that book that i sent you from the watch hill conservancy why would they mention it because they talked about all of the notable people who lived in the town oh and so they're like oh Rebecca Harkness once brought her own stage to the White House. Right. Okay. So my guess is that I found it on an obscure blog. That person didn't cite their sources, but their source was that book. I don't know what that book source was. Likely, yeah. So what I did find through the LBJ library was an entry of the presidential log, whatever you call it. Yeah, this is the Daily Diary here. Um, It's an entry for December 13th, 1966. Mm-hmm. in which the president had a very busy day that ended with entertainment and dancing in the East Room. Well, there you go. Would you like to see the entry? I would. Also, lots of fun facts that I know about LBJ. Let's hear some of them. There's a recording of him on the phone with his tailor from the White House record from the Oval Office talking about needing more room for his bunghole in his pants. He also, n- more than once... Answered questions from the press pool while taking a shit. What? And was known to expose himself 
his he had a he had a nickname for his dick. It was Jumbo. Why does it always go back to pee and poop with us? I don't know. With the president, though, it's it was crazy. Um, yes, there's like a like LBJ was like a real crazy motherfucker in the White House. Like definitely, definitely would be canceled by today's standards. He would also like physically intimidate journalists and whatnot because he was very tall. Wasn't he the one that would like drive around drunk, deranged on his Texas ranch? He, he did he did come from texas so i'm assuming that was him though george w bush also came from texas and also had a drunk driving problem i think it was lbj um okay there's there's a funny uh anecdote of lbj that he was one of the first candidates to campaign by dropping leaflets out of a helicopter and many people in rural texas had never seen a helicopter before and described them as flying windmills Oh my god. I mean, I guess. This was when he was running for governor or something, so it was like not I yeah. guess I mean the first time that I ever saw a wind what would you call that a wind farm? Mm-hmm. My friend and I were like, um, what is happening? Is it alien activity? I love wind farms. I think that those windmills are so cool. They are so cool, but if you haven't seen one, you don't know. I guess if you hadn't seen a helicopter, you is wouldn't that a know. Floating, is that a grounded <laughs> helicopter? <laughs> Okay, hold on. I just fact-checked this, and the source was myself from an article that I wrote years ago. Wait, <laughs> the source you fact-checked it, and and you discovered that it, that you were the one that made this up? No, no, no. Lyndon B. Johnson was known to zip around his Texas ranch in an amphibious vehicle resembling an everyday convertible. And there's a link. I linked to it. <laughs> uh huh. But you, but you Googled it and fact-checked it, and it was you who said that. <laughs> was it real? Did you make it up? No, I just clicked on the link that I linked to 10 surprising presidential hobbies from Forbes. Oh, Forbes. You trust Forbes more than me? I'm hurt. He ran for president. <laughs> okay, let's get back on track. What picture am I supposed to be looking at? The presidential log. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see the log. I thought you meant a picture of the actual entertainment no 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 it's like a 15 page log there is some weird stuff on here that is just too tangential to get into but so the whole last like five pages or so is just a list of the guests in the blue room honored guests in the second floor oval room right so start on page 11 do you see any guests that you recognize uh leonard bernstein Mm -hmm. for one Mm mm-hmm I feel like Betty, I should know who Betty Beale is, just because it's like a nice name. David Brinkley. Oh, fuck. Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. Ralph Ellison. Paul Engel. The Vice President and Mrs. Humphrey. Lady Bird Johnson. Couple of LBJs. Rebecca's there. Gregory Peck. Sidney Portier. Oh, wow. Sidney Portier. This is super cool. The Vanderbilts. Big day. Huge day. And then he drove his amphibious car into the Potomac. <laughs> um, and then there's also a photo uh, that I sent you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on the left. It's Lucy Johnson, daughter. Luce- Lucy Johnson is the daughter. Yeah. yeah. Arriving at the Broadway Theater in New York City for a benefit featuring the Harkness Ballet in October 1967. And she's accompanied by Rebecca on the right. Rebecca looks like uh, Jane Lynch. She, at this point she does a little yeah and that creepy photo bomber dude is brian mcdonald then director of the harkness ballet school i just assumed he was her date incorrect incorrect the times reported on some of rebecca's other famous accomplices known accomplices 
known accomplice that that also like are i don't are you saying accomplices or is the times okay because like if the times said that i'm like fuck you the times i'm just being cheeky oh look at us (laughs) okay times quote you see she said this is rebecca you see rebecca said money can buy anything it bought her the service of I'm going to butcher all of these name pronunciations, but here I go. George Skibbine. Good job on George. <laughs> Skybine. Skybine. Skibbine. Sure. Skibbine. The great George Skybine. Skibbine. Marjorie Tallchief. Alvin Skibine. Ailey. Alvin Alley, sure. Eric Brune. I know this one. Andy Warhol. But did it not guarantee her success? Mr. Unger tells us that under the direction of the dancer-choreographer Larry Rhodes, the company began to garner critical raves, whereupon Mrs. Harkness fired him. Soon, Clive Barnes was writing that the Harkness Ballet had descended beyond the necessity of serious consideration, and in 1975, it folded. She had spent the 1987 equivalent of $38 million on a failed enterprise. She rang J.D. Salinger's bell dressed as a cleaning lady— having conceived the harebrained scheme that the reclusive writer's short stories be put to music. She dyed chocolate mousse blue. She dyed a cat green. She moved hundreds of thousands of dollars from one bank account to another for the pleasure of confusing her accountants. I have no notes on this. I love all this. <laughs> so, okay, let's take this, let's take this a, 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 an act at a time. Okay. She, after her ballet started getting critical reviews, she, critical, critical raves, right? Right. She fired the ballet director. Yep. Is there any, I mean, I'm assuming that the, the, the times is speculating that it's like, cause she's nuts. Right. Like, is there any factual evidence to suggest why there was this parting of ways? I would say there's two sides to every story. Most dudes that get fired by a woman deserve it. Sick. Um, then she just started to like be nuts and, but like in like a productive way. So like dressing up like a maid to go to JD Salinger's house to convince, not just for shits, but to convince <laughs> him that his short stories should be turned into ballet into is music. awesome. I love it. I love I everything love about that. And then. Then it seems as though she like turned a real corner and is like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to dye my cat green. Well, it was not her cat. So, she, oh, it was a cat. <laughs> yeah. So this was after a feud with a neighbor. Taylor in the song changed it to dog and we don't know why. I th- Oh, yeah, yeah. The dog died at Lemon, key lemon lime Grove green. Tree. Yeah, Key Lime Green. <laughs> so Taylor has two cats. She loves cats. Maybe she just didn't want to do Woof. violence against a cat in the song. Okay. Um, but she got in a feud with her neighbors because she built this giant blue, I think it was blue, geodesic dome for her ballet dancers to practice inside, outside. Uh-huh. Okay. But inside still. Yes. But at her property on Watch Hill. Okay. And the neighbors sued her. and citing, Like you do. Citing zoning violations. And she had to tear it down. So then she like stole their cat and dyed it green. Wow. <laughs> uh, they say she was seen on occasion pacing the rock, staring out at the midnight sea, and in a feud with her neighbor, she stole his dog and dyed it a key lime green. Oh, and dyed it a key lime green. For whatever reason, 
I was reading along with the video, and I definitely read that differently than yes, and stole his dog and died at a key lime green. I I read she stole his dog and it died at key lime green, and I was like, poor dog. No, she just died at a color. That's amazing. She's my favorite. She's my favorite. Uh, yeah. So Rebecca left Holiday House in 1973, and she died. Why? She wanted to be closer to her ballet and the bitch pack. Sure. Who wouldn't? (laughs) So she died on June 17th, 1982 at the age of 67 from cancer. 1982. Yeah. Fuck. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. And she wasn't that old. 67. I mean, our parents are probably that old. Yeah. Yeah. My parents are older. I'm going to read now a lengthy bit from the times because like i said it was practically a eulogy and now that i've gotten to the point in the story where she is dead i'm going to read to you what barbara had to say about all of that okay i will try to keep my (laughs) my questions to a minimum but i don't know if i i can't guarantee anything you just raise a little hand and i'll give you the signal perfect also just disclosure these bits are excerpted for the full story hit up Google, New York Times, as I said, it's called Is There a Chic Way to Go? All right, here we go. A week after her death, on June 17th, 1982, the mortal remains of Rebecca Harkness were toted home by her older daughter, Terry, in a Gristides shopping bag. <laughs> yes, Aviv. Gristides shopping bag? Yeah, Google it. It's a so, market. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Gristides. G R I S T E D E pas S. So her mortal remains <laughs> were taken home in a bright yellow shopping bag in 1982. Fuck. By her older daughter, Terry. That rules. Oh, Gristidis is not a fancy place. Gristidis sells like Tostitos chips and stuff. No, I know. I said it's a market, like a New York oh, market. <laughs> for whatever reason, I, I thought like it was like Tiffany's or something. <laughs> no. Like, like I would understand, you know, like maybe, oh my God, she's like, ah, I want my remains taken home in like a, in like a, a fancy bag from this, from Saks Fifth Avenue. No, it's like a fucking market. (laughs) Well, don't get too excited because the ashes were then placed in a $250,000 jeweled urn made by Salvador Dali. Great. (laughs) It was just, they just hollowed out the, the, the tree. They put her in the chalice of life. The butterfly tree, yeah. But they didn't fit. Excuse me? This is a quote. Just a leg is in there, or maybe half of her head, and an arm, said one of Rebecca's friends. Several hours later, the top of the urn, called the chalice of life, was somehow... Yeah, it was the chalice of life. I know. Oh, I thought you were joking. (laughs) No. So they really put her in that thing that she bought. Yes, but she didn't fit. Just a leg is in there, or maybe half of her head and an arm. (laughs) Okay, I have... Wait, there are so many things that are happening. So it wasn't an urn, per se. It was a thing that she bought from Salvador Dali 17 years earlier. Yes, yes. Barbara doesn't know what she's fucking talking about. (laughs) And that was not meant for human remains. No. And that's not how human remains work. Correct. Just a leg. <laughs> Maybe half of a head and an arm. I thought that you were I thought that we were both having a fun time joking about how it was it was the, the same thing. No, that actually happened. 
This is like me finding out that LL Cool J's name is Lindsay Lohan. In a twist of events. <laughs> Friend um, of the show, LL Cool J. <laughs> okay, so several hours later, the top of the urn, the chalice of life, was somehow by unknown agencies uncovered. Oh my God, said a witness. She's escaped. <laughs> I love that. Very good. This post-mortem mischief was going on at Harkness House, the East 75th Street townhouse headquarters of the Harkness Ballet Foundation, which Mrs. Harkness had modeled on the St. Petersburg Ballet School. The building, according to Craig Unger, the author of this rich man, Eye of the Needle biography, was in a state of putrefaction. <laughs> Gross. Crumbling like Terra after the Civil War? What does that mean? Terra? Like Earth? T-A-R-A, capital T. Tara? Crumbling like Tara after the Civil War. Meanwhile, in her apartment at the Carlisle Hotel, people who called themselves Rebecca Harkness's friends were pillaging, grabbing things, right and left. Tara was a plantation in Gone with the Wind. This is a Gone with the Wind reference. <laughs> okay, well, sorry, I didn't get it. No, it's a fictional... <laughs> I, just have, I just have to look it up. The fictional plantation in the state of Georgia in the historical novel Gone with the Wind. I guess it crumbled after the Civil War, and rightly so. Good, fuck it. All right, so Rebecca's younger daughter, Edith. Okay, trigger warning. The way that Barbara talks about mental illness in this article is mortifying and disturbing. It's just really normal. It's just really fucked up. So just apologies ahead of time for Barbara. Rebecca's younger daughter, Edith, a failed suicide who had spent many years in mental institutions, took only her mother's pills. Secondol, Nembutal, Thallium, Haldol. Librium, and various painkillers. Forty vials in all. Alan Pierce, Rebecca's son, by the first of her four husbands, was unable to be present. Convicted of murder in the second degree. Whoa! (laughs) He was behind bars in a Florida jail. Bobby Skeevers, Rebecca's lover, 25 years younger than she, and a self-declared homosexual, pronounced her children the most worthless, selfish, useless creatures I've ever seen. Wait. I'm raising my hand. Okay, hi. Bobby Skeevers. Bobby Bobby Skeeves. Her lover and a self-described homosexual. Yes. So, what? I don't know. Okay. Okay, so Bobby, yeah, said that her children were the most worthless, selfish, useless creatures I've ever seen. Now, here's Barbara, just giving you her old opinion. (laughs) The old Barbara charm. (laughs) Yeah, the Barb treatment. If I report on the demise of a multimillionaire patron of the dance, dry-eyed, it is because I am confident in the belief that nothing we say about the dead can prejudice the defense or tip the scales of judgment. I myself wouldn't give the time of day to anyone who cleaned out her pool with Don Perignon, put mineral oil in the punch at her sister's debutante ball, and all in the middle of the Great Depression, got tossed off an ocean liner for shouting obscenities, throwing dinner plates at an orchestra of Filipinos, gamely playing the American national anthem, and offending the sensibilities of her fellow passengers by swimming nude, for which actions she counted herself witty. Okay. Once again, my hand is raised. I'm here for it. So Barbara's like, you know, I'm not going to cry for her. Because she's already in hell. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we have a we have a couple more Rebecca stories. She once got kicked off of a boat for throwing 
dinner plates at a Filipino orchestra playing the national anthem and mm-hmm. then sw- swam nude. Mm-hmm. Do we know why she threw those? Like, was she like, ah, oh, Filipinos have no right playing the national anthem? Or was she like, this is an oppressive anthem that we don't. We don't stand for that here. Like, what was this? Her- is why I need the book. I even thought, what if I just reach out to Craig and I'm like, "Hey, I worked at Boston Magazine too. I'm a Swifty. Can I get the book? The, give me this book. <laughs> I need this book. Yeah, this is bizarre. Yeah. Um, okay, so I cannot believe this next bit is written by a woman, but as we know, Barbara's got her feminist card revoked. Sure. This is the type of shit that would have gotten you lobotomized like 50 years earlier. Whoa. The stuff I mean, that, um, that, that Harkness, that Rebecca yeah, is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Horrifying. Okay. So, Barb's continues. I do admit, however, that I'd go... <laughs> a- <laughs> Sorry. Already just like, maybe I've gone too far. Maybe she's not burning in hell. No, no, no. This, this next part is not nice either. Oh, great. I do admit, however, that I'd go a long way to read a sentence like this, spoken by Bertrand Castelli, the co-producer of Hair, about the time he made love to Rebecca Harkness in her office. This is his quote. It was as if we were two camels in the desert who suddenly know that the only way to make an oasis is to really talk sense. After his brief interlude in the oasis, Mr. Castelli was made the artistic director of the Harkness Ballet. Kiss me, she commanded. The others, they just know how to bite. Are you alive? What the fuck? (laughs) Why do we always have to go back then? Okay. Quote. We made love like two camels. (laughs) Who know that the only way to start. No, we can't build a fire without a spark. (laughs) This gun's for hire. Even though we're just dancing in the dark. I feel like all this stuff should have been in the song, though. It's like making me like the song less that she's not like, there's no like camel verse. I gotta wonder how much does Taylor know about Rebecca? Can't, can't be that much. <laughs> or, else, or else you don't leave out the camel stuff. I think she really was trying to do a good, dignified job. Sure. It's hard to get all that into a song. She could write another takedown song. She, but she, but she clearly did not go to journalism school, <laughs> right? Right. So I'm not sure if she's like the world's greatest researcher, <laughs> right? But wow. But it's thanks to her that we are on this journey right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. This isn't. I'm not being critical. I'm just like being realistic about ta- where Taylor's skills lie. <laughs> so uh, back to Barbara. Mm, Babs. Craig Unger appears to be dazzled by all this, although it is sometimes hard to tell whether his breathlessness arises from approval, disapproval, sadness, awe, or simple bewilderment. Mr. Unger, who records interviews uncritically and unreflectively, does not permit us to know exactly how he feels about his subject. Because he's a journalist! Yeah, I'm not sure if that judgment is in your voice or in her voice. (laughs) I'm, I'm doing Barbara. You're trying your best, I know. <laughs> okay, so I wrote, which is more than we can say about you, Babs. Mm, Babs. Like, yeah, he's a journalist. He should be uncritically and unreflectively reporting. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a time and a place for, a, like, opinion, opinionated journalism. But to 
you know, as Barbara is doing, like, present your opinions as facts, even though they're so insane and based in, on not fact, then, like, you know, fuck you. And she's so selective with the picture she's trying to paint. Yeah. So there's just a little more from her we're going to read. Oh, good. Her daughter, Edith, so Rebecca's daughter, Edith, jumped off roofs, swallowed pills, and managed not to kill herself. How should she do it? Rebecca Harkness asked. Is there a chic way to go? She lived on champagne and injections, vitamin B, testosterone, painkillers, as a result of which her bathrooms were splattered with blood and her muscles calcified. She walked, an acquaintance said, like Frankenstein. One could almost feel sorry for her. Almost. Almost. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do feel sorry for her. It doesn't sound like Rebecca was the greatest mother in the world. Again, we're not here to judge. Yeah, that's Babs's job. At the very end, according to Bobby Skeevers, as she lay dying of cancer, it was complete chaos. It was so wonderful. Everybody running around, signing wills, and trying on different wigs. Yeah, this feels like the definition of camp toward the end. <laughs> yeah, so in this, this really, really got me going. So the second to last paragraph, Barbara writes... It might also have been interesting to see how a feminist writer would have assimilated the facts of Rebecca Harkness's sorry life. Might Mrs. Harkness be seen as a casualty of her own doomed and defiled expectations? Unfit yes. for mothering, unfit for yes. ordinary love, uh-huh. unfit, untrained to be the caretaker of a great fortune? Was she yep. altogether silly or altogether bad? Was she what? power or pawn? And how in the world did she get away with that? Uh, but that's like that accidental leftist Twitter where people like run face first into the point and still don't get it. Yeah. Like, yes, Barbara, I'm wondering that too. Luckily wow. we have Taylor for that. Yeah. So, right. So back to Taylor. So Taylor sums up the song with 50 years is a long time. Holiday house sat quietly on the beach, free of women with madness, their men and bad habits. And then it was bought by me. I still don't like bought by me. I get all the feelings. When I heard that, I, hold the I was like, please let this be true. Please let this be true. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, so, so like narratively, I like the fact that she owns the house, but like bought by me is just bad, a bad sentence structure. I get it. But don't you have to make some <sighs> liberties for your art? And now I hold the key. No, I don't like that. That's a cliche. <laughs> and now I hold its key. House keys, keys, motherfucker. Is that what he's saying? House keys? No, that's what I thought it was. Oh, really? Is yeah. That why, is that why you started this podcast? Is because you thought that that song said house keys? No, but I've told you this before. I've forgotten. Okay. Yeah, so, and clearly there is like a comparison. Even, even if Taylor did not put this in her song that like, now I own this house, there would be this comparison drawn anyway between her and the woman she's singing about just because, like, that's, you know, what we do. Um, we compare the art right. to the artist. So, yeah, she's saying that she's like, we all go a little mad sometimes, but she's, she's not all that irreverent. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe she didn't know how irreverent Rebecca was. <laughs> so the verse that says, what, 50 years is a long yeah. time holiday house at Quiet on the Beach. So I thought that that part was slightly factually inaccurate, but then I think I realized what Taylor meant. So according to the Watch Hill Conservancy, Rebecca put Holiday House on the market in 1973. 
mm-hmm. to move back to New York in her ballet. Mm-hmm. At that time, a partnership of local Watch Hill residents banded together to protect the property from development. So it was 40 years, right? Because she bought it in 2013. Right. Okay. So the property was... just kind of sounds better. Yeah. Browner number, I guess. Yeah. Um, the property was so large that the partnership divided it into three lots with the center lot, lot number two, containing the house. Mm-hmm. The following year in 1974, that lot was purchased by some preppy guy, Gurdon B. Waddles. Gurdon B. Waddles, you say? <laughs> yes, G-U-R-D-O-N-B dot Waddles. Wow! <laughs> These na- the names in this episode are amazing. <laughs> Part of the sale agreement was that the house would be reduced in size and that the sections on either side would be demolished, mm-hmm. which reduced the 40-room mansion. This is where I was like, but how much square feet? Because yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they said 40-room mansion, reducing it down to 11,000 square feet. Yeah, so so probably over 20,000 square feet. Right. And then over the next four years, the Waddles family acquired the other two lots and they renamed the cottage High Watch. Instead of Holiday House. Right. And then the Waddles remained at High Watch until 1996 when they sold the property for $3.5 million to a family who hardly used the property at all for the 19 years they owned it. And it sat empty most of that time. Then Taylor bought it in 2013. So the house wasn't empty for 50 or 40 years, but it was free of... Well, it was free of madness, Women right? with madness, yeah. their men and bad habits. So what was his bad habit? I guess, like his hard drinking hard eating hard attack life i think their men doesn't just refer to their husband right she had all these dancers yeah i mean potentially yeah but like there is a man in the story that we don't really like know much about bill yeah right it's not about bill but you know what i mean right i wonder what his bad hat because they they Taylor also says in the beginning, like, he had a, a, a heart problem because he had bad habits, right? Yeah, they, they, they were known for, to be partiers. They had loud parties, and I think he was told he should probably slow down and didn't. Uh, so then we have the switch from the third person to the first. Who knows mm-hmm. if I never showed up, what could have been? I had mm-hmm. a marvelous time ruining everything. Right. So when I heard the song... The first time she talks about herself, because she says, then it was bought by me. Who knows if mm-hmm. I never showed up, what might have been. I thought she said I had a marvelous time moving in everything, <laughs> like moving in all my stuff. And I loved that. Right. And then I was sad that that wasn't a line. W- no. <laughs> she just says ruining everything like four more times. So, yeah, there's there's something I wanted to mention about like kind of the, the melody, the musicality of this of this moment. So she says, like, I had a marvelous time, right? Mm-hmm. And the way she says time is like, like there's like a weird kind of slurring that to me, like connotes the, the madness of the character, Mm -hmm. right? That like, that there is this kind of, I don't want to say maliciousness, but like this deviousness of the, of the marvelous time. Oh yeah. And so, but, but the, the way she says time specifically gives that to me, which I think is cool. I love it. Yeah. And if you get a chance to watch the documentary. Oh, I, I'm sure I will have to. <laughs> I recommend it because it, she talks about the writing of the different songs and then you can see her playing them with Aaron and Jack and. Aaron, who is a co-writer on the song, we should mention. You can see it on her face when she's being mischievous. Sure. There's like a fun directing game 
where um you have your actor do it the way they think that they should do it and you like quote unquote get it and then at the very end you give them like a free take to be insane right just like <laughs> do just do the insane thing and that winds up be always being the take that you use and like when i've worked with other singers and like produced records that's like it it happens 99 times out of 100 and so this sounds like her insane take right like i'm gonna play it as though i'm actually nuts actually i watch so much like outtakes from how i met your mother and i went to this live neil patrick harris thing so i'm not sure where i heard this but neil patrick (laughs) harris was saying how the the character of barney stinson was this like tall italian like new yorker guy and nothing Mm -hmm. like him and he had no idea why his agent sent him on that audition so he literally like opened the door and like did like a tumble forward roll and was like being as insane as Mm -hmm. he could and they were like yes (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like some kind of, especially as like a performer, I'm not that much of a performer as like some people, but there is this kind of self-censorship that you sometimes need to, you know, you need to take on a different persona to to be as insane as the moment requires. And as like a not classically trained actor, it just, it it is, it's just like a, a, a pep talk with my own with myself that's like okay you got to be nuts now mm-hmm. but you're not it's not you it's this character <laughs> yeah unhinge a little yeah unhinge a little act three taylor swift and the town oh no locals seem to have mixed feelings about swift's arrival from what i can tell plenty of people were genuinely excited and not upset at all about her presence there but of course you're always gonna have the haters yeah, especially because she's throwing parties like not not that she's that close to the neighbors, but she's throwing big parties and you I know think there, there was like ten people being, there, but yeah. Hashtags being coined there. <laughs> think about it though. I had probably like eight people here this weekend. I don't have a huge mansion and a huge property, right? It's kinda like that wasn't a big party for her property. Right. Anyway. So the wall and the beach in front of her house, which you got a really good look at the wall in the picture Mm -hmm. with Rebecca and her dancers, that ocean wall for decades was a hangout spot for surfers and teenagers that would just hang out on the wall. Because it was like on... Because the house was unoccupied. Yeah, Yeah, for 20 years. So the Boston Herald reported that Swift's muscle patrolled the public walkway to the beach, which abuts her property to make sure no trespassers wander onto her compound. And recently a cleanup crew hired by the nonprofit East beach association was kicked off Swift's beach while they tried to pick up debris. And then Swift's camp like said, Oh, it was the, that was a miscommunication. I have mixed feelings about that. Okay. I mean, I think that she has like a right to her privacy, obviously. Uh-huh. And like, especially like more so than other people, her privacy is at risk because she's one of the biggest stars in the world. But I also have a problem with like people owning more land than they need. Right. And clearly like this is like a massive piece of land that she doesn't actually need. So like, you know, maybe if maybe if this is like a perfect world, she like walls off a separate side for just the surfers to continue hanging out or something. I don't know. She's not like legally required to do anything like that. I just like it feels weird that that basically one person or two people are living in a 11,000 square foot mansion that has its own beach. Not for nothing. There was multiple stalker break ins into that house. 
into the into the holiday house yeah i remember i heard this on the radio that it was like the same person like has broken into taylor swift's rhode island mansion multiple times yeah i think both things can be true at the same time right like she needs a a, a very high level of privacy higher than basically anyone else in the world except for maybe the president and it sucks that people are taking resources that that they don't need and like one contributes to the other right okay like she wouldn't need these resources and the security and this private beach and this and that if we just like left her the fuck alone sometimes absolutely yeah so i'm sure she would prefer it the other way honestly i i yeah i bet you can check out the link that i sent you stalker breaks into taylor swift's rhode island mansion takes off shoes to be polite well (laughs) at least he was polite yeah five-year restraining orders this guy's name is richard j McEwen. he's he was 26 at the time and which was in 2019 and he drove 200 miles from milford new jersey which (laughs) is a place that i have been and played a high school talent <laughs> show at to Westerly, R- Rhode Island, and broke in by shattering a door. What a fucking weirdo. This is that same thing that like I was talking about earlier, which is like you are under no obligation to like care about the people that make the music that you like. Like, like you don't have to like you can just enjoy a Taylor Swift song and then go about the rest of your life and not create this relationship. And it's not just Taylor Swift, it's fucking every pop star. But you don't mm-hmm. have to create a relationship between a one-sided relationship between you and this person that doesn't know you exist. Right. It's scary and frustrating <laughs> and like contributes to a lot of stuff, including the kind of weird Britney Spears stuff that we were talking about before. Right. Yeah. Like I feel proud of Taylor Swift. You know, I think it must have been, I get it. She did have a charmed life. I mm-hmm. also think that she puts herself out there and she takes certain risks and I fucking love seeing a female in certain power positions saying the things that I feel need to be said. And so I'm proud of a woman that does that and sticks their neck out to do that. Because a lot that we learned in the Americana documentary is that coming from a country music background, she was forbidden from talking about politics and her dad was her manager and they were really against her coming out against certain things and for certain things. And finally well, she just said, fuck we it. crucified the dis- the Dixie chicks. Exactly. She mentioned that in the documentary too. Um, so it's just interesting. I think that, I think that every, it, this might be like the American idol thing about it too, which is like every pop star, we need to create this narrative that they came from like, a one room shack where they were like setting their own fire to boil turnips so they could feed their 10 grandparents. Like, no, she did have a charmed life. She's a good songwriter, but she had the, she had the privilege of becoming a good songwriter because her dad bought a 3% stake in a record label and really believed in her and supported her. And she never had to really like have a nine to five job. Same with, like, she was able to record Folklore and Evermore because she is a very rich person who was able to put a studio in her mansion. And that doesn't take anything away from the art, right? That it's still good art, but, like, we have to acknowledge that she had the privilege to chill in her mansion with her recording studio and Jack Antonoff and write two records 
when a lot of people during the pandemic were worried about where their next meal was going to come from. Absolutely. So I think that's actually what is super cool about TikTok mm-hmm. is that it is democratizing that in a way. And I see so many cool songwriters on there, so many talented songwriters who are putting out songs and by and large surpassing the record label. You know, you can go right to Spotify now. And mm-hmm. as a writer of books, I was thinking about this the other day, how, yeah, you can self-publish on Amazon, but th- everyone's getting their music from Spotify. Plenty yes. of people are still getting their books from bookstores. Yeah. And there are some people that are, you know, the radi- radio has basically gone away and Spotify is the new radio with that same kind of payola scam that radio has always used. And like, yeah, it's tough to, it's tough to discover new music. and. TikTok is doing what MySpace was doing 15 years ago, which is like democratizing new music, which is awesome, but still like has a bunch of algorithms that it needs to play with. There's this there's a singer called Blue Eyes on TikTok, right? This is this very specific thing, right? So I saw a TikTok of this woman who's who her artist name is Blue Eyes, and she's like, oh, I wanted to write a Taylor Swift what happens if Taylor Swift and Phoebe Bridgers like made a song together. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to the song and she like, you know, did the TikTok producer thing, which I see a lot of, which is like showing how she did built the track and all this stuff. And I find it very fascinating and it was a cool song. And I was like, wow, what a cool experiment as you heard last week with me. Like I like sound alikes. I like pastiches, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I like looked up her Spotify and like, no, that's just one of the songs on her record. Right. And this was this was one of those things that she created this video to capitalize on the fame of Phoebe Bridgers and Taylor Swift. And I'm not being critical of that. I think that that is a necessary thing that people have to do. But it was like I think Taylor Swift did that with Tim McGraw. Right. Of course. Um, And there's a new there's a new punk record that just came out like it's coming out on the 28th. But the single just dropped. And the single is called Featuring Mark Hoppus. And I got fooled. I was like, <laughs> oh, is Mark Hoppus on this thing? And it he's not. It's just a song called Featuring Mark Hoppus. That's smart. Yeah. And so I think that there is like clearly this like there it's all marketing and it make it's the band is called Hot Mulligan, by the way. Um, <laughs> and it's all marketing and it feels really really creepy and disingenuous to for everyone to just pretend like there's no marketing and anything and everything mm-hmm. is being so genuine all the mm-hmm. time fair point yeah so if i'm so if i if i ever seem like i'm anti taylor swift it's not because i don't like taylor swift or her music it's because the one thing that feels fake about her and about many 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 pop artists is oh i came from nothing i don't think she has ever said that though no but there's an aura around her that she is the every woman and i don't think that she's ever been the every woman i think whitney houston is every woman (laughs) yeah i don't have that same interpretation because she can't walk outside of her apartment yeah there's no pretending that you're the everyday person when you can't even get in a cab I think Miley Cyrus does a similar thing where she's like, I, I'm, I'm crazy like you. And I'm like, no, you're Billy Ray Cyrus's kid. 
<laughs> and I love true. you. I think you're a great singer. I think you're a great artist. Maybe don't culturally appropriate so much, but like you're not from the trailer park. Right. You are Billy Ray Cyrus's daughter. There's so much nepotism in fame and Hollywood and I think uh, it goes back to with great power comes great responsibility and who's doing what with it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm all right with Taylor at this current moment. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it's, it's the quality of music that sells. Cause like there are plenty of famous people's kids who put out singles who never went anywhere. Okay. So on the documentary of folklore, Mm -hmm. Taylor talks with Jack Antonoff about writing the song. Sure. Do you want to read it? Yes. Desperately. Okay. Okay. You want to be Tay? I would love to be Tay. Let me limber up. Hold on. (laughs) Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Okay, I'm ready. Put your bangs down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Does she she have bangs at this point? She has curly bangs now. I literally don't know what she looks like. She has curly bangs now. Oh, I have curly bangs right now, too. Perfect. Go for it. I'd been wanting to write a song about Rebecca Harkness since 2013, probably, and I'd never figured out the right way to do it because there was never a track that felt like it could kind of hold the entire story of someone's life and whatever and move between generations or whatever. Then when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, she's referring to the track that I guess Jack Antonoff made. Um, Sent her. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's my opening. I think this is my moment. I think I can write the Rebecca Harkness story. That song is such a folklore moment to me because it's not about you, but it's all about you. Well, it's that country music narrative device where in country music, it's like this guy did this and this woman did this and they met there and they met and their kid was me. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it's not till the very end where you spin it around and reveal the story is about someone else. I think it's the most revealing thing. I think it's so deeply personal. Oh, it really hits you in the gut when you hear that at the end. Thanks. And this I is mean, me, she's not wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe that is why I feel like at the end, sometimes I want to cry. It really does hit me in the gut. I feel proud of these women. I'm just like, fuck yeah, you get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, because there is, you know, no small bit of luck. The, the reason that she wanted to write the Rebecca Harkness story song is because she bought Rebecca Harkness's house. So it could have been like, George Jones bought this house in 1915, and the foundation is cracked, so I got to replace it. And that <laughs> concrete layer was me. Like, like I don't know how much of the lore of the house was instrumental in her even buying the house, but it's like a nice coincidence that she... It's, it's you know, it's... L- opportunity is luck plus talent or whatever the the, those dumb books say and like she like saw a moment of coincidence that was nice and exploited it sounds really bad but she like used it for her art Mm -hmm. right and that's great that's like what what everyone should be doing everyone should be looking at the you know the inspiration all writers should be looking at the inspiration of their own life for the truth of what they're trying to say about themselves and each other and the world and stuff yeah, I think it's a much nicer eulogy than Rebecca got. Yeah, than than Barbara. Fuck you, Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Let's read Barbara's eulogy. <laughs> yeah, she is also dead. What's her name? Barbara Grizzuti starts with Harrison. an H. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Barbara Grazuti Harrison eulogy from the New York Times. You ready? Yeah, I'm sure it's glowing. Oh, it's so long. Jesus. <laughs> so she died in 1967 at the age of... Oh, I'm sorry. She died in like, 1960. Like what? No, she <laughs> died at the know. age of 67 okay. in 2002. So did Rebecca. <laughs> they were both 67. Oh. Barbara Grazuti Harrison, who emerged as a popular, prolific writer of keenly observed nonfiction with a 1978 book about the dozen years she spent as a Jehovah's Witness, died on Wednesday at a hospice in Manhattan. She was 67 and lived in the Park Slope neighborhood in Brooklyn. The cause was a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, said her daughter, Anna Harrison, who was a total bitch addicted to pills. <laughs> she once wrote that for years she smoked six a packs of A failed abortion attempt. <laughs> yeah. Her daughter. <laughs> yeah. She once wrote that for years she smoked six packs of cigarettes a day, so she's currently burning in hell. <laughs> 67 Club, baby. Yeah, it's, this, this seems very passive, right? This is written by Douglas Martin, April 26, 2002. But this is like how a eulogy should be written, without judgment of the fucking person you're eulogizing. But this is also the Times eulogizing a Times writer. Yeah, of course. But it doesn't, it also, it doesn't seem overly effusive either. Mm-hmm. Right. How a eulogy should be, as you mentioned. Her first book, Unlearning the Lie, colon, Sexism in School, grew out of the children's experience with efforts to quell sexism at what was then the Woodward Park School in Brooklyn. So she was a feminist. Was she? I don't know. Her other books included <laughs> Italian Days, an impressionistic and literary travel book about Italy that won the American Book Award and novel Foreign Bodies. Wow. Barbs. Yeah. Babs. So as I mentioned, I couldn't get a copy of Blue Bloods, but I did read as many recaps as I could and all of the comments on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I came across a few from people who knew Rebecca. Oh, interesting. Or claim, right? Right. Because we can't, can't really fact check that. Right. Like this one from G. Moore. Great biography about a wild person. This is from March 20th, 2011. When I was 17, Mrs. Harkness saw me in an audition class and, out of hundreds of others, I was one of only three chosen to apprentice with the Harkness Ballet. For the next few years, we had an educational and professional experience second to none. I was too young and stupid to understand all that was going on behind the scenes. All I knew was that, not only was I receiving the finest training anyone could ever hope to have, I was in an environment that will never, ever again be duplicated." Her vast wealth was directed towards her dancers being provided with literally everything anyone could ever want. That said, Mr. Unger's book fills in the blanks with the information about the people and events that dictated how Mrs. Harkness would react. Now looking back, it's so obvious that she was surrounded by sycophants who only wanted to bleed her dry. Her great tragedy was she could not accept honest criticism or concern. It was her way or no way. Whatever, I will always be grateful for all she did for me. That sounds completely accurate to what i was hearing about rebecca to begin with the interesting thing also is like i think some of the tacit criticisms of rebecca blowing all that money is like well she should be making more money because capitalism right like mm -hmm. like blowing money on things that you want to exist in the world like ballets and movie theaters like fuck that that's stupid what you should be doing is hoarding your money and making more money <laughs> right. so that poor people don't have money and can't experience the ballet. Right. It's such a backwards yeah. mentality that is so forced down our throats. Yes. It's so it's so forced down our throats that I it took me two hours into this podcast to realize what, <laughs> that 
that it was happening. A hundred percent. One more review was from January 2010. It's not the greatest book in the world, but Rebecca Harkness. <laughs> okay. But Rebecca Harkness was my great aunt, and I loved her in spite of herself. It definitely leans toward the negative, but I remember a flamboyant, fun-loving, caring woman who was taken advantage of by everyone and sadly didn't care. Yeah, that also sounds accurate. Sadly didn't, but she did care, right? She must have cared. Because she cared, but in certain ways, right? She cared enough to die that woman's cat green. Right. But she didn't care that she wasn't playing by someone else's rules. Right. What's she going to do? And and it seems like she kind of broke some of those rules out of spite when she could have had an easier time if she knew what rules were worth breaking and what rules weren't. But, like, who am I to judge? Well, that's all I got. That's all you got. If you'd like to see any of the photos we've referenced in this show, head to our Instagram <laughs> at Lyrics for Lunch. Yes. What about Twitter? We're also on Twitter at Lyrics for Lunch. And you can email us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. What's your favorite Taylor Swift song? Impossible. Have you ever met a rich old lady that was institutionalized? <laughs> no. And tune in next week for a new when we do this with another song. I would like us to go out on audio from the documentary that I chose and emailed you, and it's about cats. Like the movie Cats? It's going to be, the cats part is going to be a surprise. No, no. Because oh. <laughs> she's in the movie Cats. It's not that. Ugh. So we're going to go out this week on a clip from Taylor and Jack Antonoff from the Folklore documentary. Um, talking about the making of folklore. Talking about the making of folklore. Until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Hope you had a marvelous time. Couple of swift. Why do you keep saying marvelous time? Is that a thing? Oh, yeah, it's in the song. Duh. Jesus. I'm an idiot. <laughs> so the record was recorded here, my studio, and your house. Yes. Did you give it a name? Yes. I think it's called Kitty Committee Studios on the album. It works. It does, because I've got cats fighting in the background. There was a big cat bed. vibe. Yeah, and then like the cats were the only people. The things cats were like the Laura cats kept were going cats. in and out because if I were to close the door on them, they'd meow. Yeah. So they need to be able to be free range cats. Yes. Yeah, cage free. Guys, stop it. Stop. Stop. She Benjamin always starts it and Olivia always finishes it. He's twice her size, but she's an amazing fighter. Look at her. It's usually better.